Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Financial Times, I'm Emma Dunkley, and this is a special banking podcast for our series, Beyond Banking. Banking is in mayhem. The top banks have changed their leadership. Graduates are shunning banking as a career. And non-banks are shaking up lending. Indeed, there has been a seminal shift in lending since the financial crisis. New entrants like peer-to-peer platforms are stepping in to provide businesses with loans that were historically provided by the big banks. But will the incumbent banks ultimately be disintermediated and have their dominance in the market disrupted? Joining me today is Paul Lynham, Chief Executive of Secure Trust, a challenger bank, and Ridian Lewis, Chief Executive of Ratesetter, a peer-to-peer lender. Ridian, how exactly is peer-to-peer lending threatening the incumbent banks? Well, I'd say the first thing is that it's only looking to disintermediate one part of banking. It's not looking to take on banking per se. Banks do many, many things. They're sort of conglomerates with all sorts of different functions and product lines. Peer-to-peer lending is looking specifically at lending and borrowing and focusing on that. And I think where it is threatening the traditional model is in its showing its ability to offer value. Banks seek to offer safety and certainty, and that is a very, very valuable service. I would argue that that can sometimes come at the expense of value. And I think where peer-to-peer lending is shaking things up is by building a model based around delivering value to the end users as opposed to its primary purpose or sole purpose being around absolute certainty. So it's putting the case for the optimum value to be achieved between investors and borrowers. And Paul, what about challenger banks? Are you threatening the incumbent banks as well across the board or perhaps in key segments? Well, I think just like Rillian has said, the large too-big-to-fail banks are dominant in a number of markets, which, frankly, without a level playing field, challenger banks, regardless of the size of those challenger banks, cannot compete. So things like low LTV, unoccupied mortgages, things like current accounts, free from credit current accounts, and things like large corporate lending, they very much are the domain of the too-big-to-fail banks. But many other of their products are attractive to alternative lenders and including challenger banks. So things like motor finance, the higher LTV, owner-occupied and buy-to-let mortgages, consumer finance, uh, SME deposits, SME lending, asset finance and invoice finance. So the challenger bank tag is a little bit of a misnomer because the challengers are not looking to challenge all across the board. Instead, a better way to look at the challengers is as specialist lenders, which just happen to have a banking license. And how important would you say scale is in some of the key segments that you're challenging? I think scale brings with it significant advantages in the context of economies and costs. But if you get too big, then you get diseconomies of scale. So I think scale to an extent is important, but the benefits of scale with the 
rapid digitization of the whole sector are becoming less important. So uh, I am interested, there's a lot of people running around talking about themselves as being new digital banks or fintechs. You know, Secure Trust has been around 63 years now. We process billions of pounds worth of lending every year, and we do that on a paperless basis. So you know, we are using financial technology, fintech, as much as anybody else, and that is overcoming some of the scale advantages that perhaps the dominant banks have historically had. Enridian, can peer-to-peer lenders achieve scale or does the model need to change to bring on board more institutional investors and what are the implications of this? The peer-to-peer lending platforms do need to achieve scale and I think they are rapidly approaching that. I would argue that scale is probably two or three times the size that we are today. I mean, talking about my own platform, Ratesetter, we're closing on a billion of cumulative lending, 500 million of lending every year. If that number doubles or trebles, then I think you're in a situation that you could call scale. And at that point, the economics of what we do become even more favorable. I don't think institutional money is a precondition of that. The way I see institutional money is that the platforms now have a bit of a choice. There are some platforms who are designing product with solely institutions in mind, and there are some that are going for a retail-first approach. And at Ratesetter, that's very much what we're focused on. So is to achieve the most diverse form of funding we possibly can and make sure that the retail investor is kept in this game because they stand to benefit enormously because they sometimes don't have access to the best investments and this is a breakthrough product. So we're determined to build the base on retail investment. And the way we see institutional money is that it's necessary to balance supply and demand and it's very useful. It's like being able to put coal in the furnace every so often. And, you know, rate setter, we've plugged in a number of institutional lenders, but the balance is still very much retail. I mean, in the, in the case of rate setter, about 80% is retail, 20% institutional. So clearly institution is giving the platforms the ability to scale. But over time, I, I still think you can scale with the retail. We will become scaled retail businesses as well. I guess another key issue for both challenger banks or specialist banks and peer-to-peer platforms is tax and regulation. In the case of challenger banks, there was a new tax that George Osborne proposed in the summer that could adversely impact the challengers. Paul, what's your view on this and could this arguably stifle your progress and lending? It will certainly slow down the amount of lending growth we can sustain from capital retention on the back of profits. So it will slow as opposed to stifle. Uh, I think the interesting thing about regulation generally is to not lose sight of just how much lobbying power and influence the large banks have. So this bank tax surcharge has basically come about because the larger banks have been able to win a reduction in the bank levy which only previously applied to banks with balance sheets in excess of £25 billion, which was only 10 banks, as I understand it. The reality is that in order to avoid a fiscal black hole, George Osborne has had to extend a surcharge to all banks and building societies that generate more than £25 million profit in a tax year. So we have found ourselves being used to subsidise for a reduction in tax for the larger banks, which is very, very unsatisfactory and very frustrating. By the same token, if we are to be treated from a tax perspective on the same basis as the big banks, it's only equitable and fair that 
steps should be taken by the Treasury to create a level playing field so that we have the opportunity to profit on the same basis as the big banks. And therefore, I think this tax surcharge has not unhelpfully opened the door directly to Treasury for myself and my peers to uh, deal directly with Mr. Osborne and his senior staff to help them to understand that it's actually in the taxpayer's best interests to remove the too-big-to-fail banking problem and ultimately, the only way that can happen is if the small banks get bigger by taking market share away from the big banks as they get smaller. So I think it's frustrating, but equally, there may well be some benefit from what are currently frustrating developments. And what about the peer-to-peer sector? It seems to be less heavily regulated than the banks. Is that fair to say? And is this a concern in the event that a platform fails? Does this have implications in terms of whether customers then flock back to banks as a safe house? Let me just say, I think the government attitude to peer-to-peer lending has been quite forward-thinking. And we mustn't forget that the regulatory framework now has to encourage competition. I think prior to the crisis, it had to give due regard to competition but it's now an obligation of the regulator to look at competition. And I think it's within that context that it's looking to encourage peer-to-peer lending. And I think to Paul's point around the lobbying power of the very large banks, and I agree with Paul entirely around that having a system that's too big to fail is very unhealthy in the long run. But I mean, to their lobbying power, I think you could envisage a time when a breakthrough product such as peer-to-peer lending might have solicited quite ferocious lobbying from the establishment banks. Um, But I think in the crisis and in the event of such plentiful state support, I think they've lost a degree of moral authority. So I don't think that you can lobby against competition when you are so reliant on government support. So I think that's given a window of opportunity for peer-to-peer lending to prove itself. Now, the challenge for peer-to-peer lending is to take up that challenge and perform well. So that's just some sort of preamble. With regard to -to peer-to-peer lending and the regulation, the industry itself sought regulation. It was very proactive in explaining to government and the regulator how the industry works, how it was going to grow, what the benefits are, what the risks are, and, you know, to really encourage a sensible regulatory framework. And the government was very supportive, and the regulator is now enacting that. And so far, we've seen a very sensible approach by the FCA, and we're very supportive of the regulation. We think it's a good thing, and we have a very clear line of sight as to what that regulation looks like for the next two or three years. After that, clearly, the regulator can assess how things have moved, but at the moment, we have a clear line of sight. And you mentioned that it's less regulated than banks. I'd argue that time's coming to an end. I mean, we are due to be regulated over the course of the next six to 12 months. The industry's moving from interim permission to full permission. And at that point, the borrowing side of the service will be as regulated as banks. And then the investing side is regulated according to what it is, which is an investment, not a deposit. And it'll have the same degree of robust oversight and processes as a fund manager, let's say. And there'll be very, very strict rules on things like client money and how money flows and the reliability and scalability of the IT. So I would say that the idea that it's a lightly regulated industry is coming to an end. And I think that's got to be a good thing because it will give a sense of scrutiny and um, and therefore trust. With regards to tax, I think, as you may know, or your listeners may know, as of next April, you're going to be able to put your peer-to-peer account into an ISA. And I think that's going to be a, you know, it's a very attractive development. And I think our view on tax is that we're not looking for any advantages 
as an industry. We want to be a self-sufficient, sustainable industry, but we're not looking to have any disadvantages put in front of us. So something like ISAs is just allowing us to compete on the same terms. And I think the less tax gets in the way and favours some product over others, the better. So ultimately, are we more likely to see challenges and peer-to-peer platforms pose effective competition against the banks, or can they ultimately supplant and truly disintermediate the large lenders? I think in lending and borrowing, just talking about peer-to-peer, and then people may want to talk about the challenger side, I think the platforms do have an opportunity to reach scale and become truly disruptive. And I think it is taking the huge activity of borrowing and putting it to the open market and that is disruptive and I think it's incumbent on the platforms to prove their ability to manage that over time and I don't think there's a shortcut to that that just takes time to prove but the model itself has the potential to change the dynamic of lending and borrowing and offer I hope a huge amount of value. And Paul? I think when we look at the challenger picture the facts, to an extent, speak for themselves. So between 2012 and 2014, on average, the larger banks deleveraged by over 3% on their lending balances. By contrast, the average challenger bank grew by nearly 10% per annum. And some banks, like Secure Trust and others, have grown in excess of 50% per annum. So clearly, the smaller specialist lenders have been growing really quite nicely. The reality is that the UK lending market as a whole is 1.7 trillion and it is growing at a reasonable pace. So when you look at the overall landscape, I think there's significant opportunity for many different sized and differently focused competitors to the big banks. Ultimately, the smaller, more nimble service providers, whether they're challenger banks, fintechs, peer-to-peer, have got an opportunity to move at pace and at a pace that the incumbents can't, which should mean that they have a sustainable advantage, provided they continue to reinvest in their competitive advantages and don't get greedy and focus on short-term profits. Brilliant. Well, thank you both Paul and Ridian for joining us today. You can read, hear and watch more about the changing fortunes of the world's banks all this week in our series Beyond Banking. On Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. FT.com